This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Thanks for being here. We are today going to be talking about the war in Ukraine with Russia. There are a lot of experts now saying, get ready because this thing is going to drag out, not for a short time, for years. Are they right? There's a new TV show, a new Netflix show, a reality show called Snowflake Mountain. What's it about? Well, we want to tell you. It's a hilarious premise. Canada, Ontario, Hamilton in particular, made millions of dollars because we were the site of many of these scenes that were shot for the Umbrella Academy show. This report that they're basing this on just shows how impactful having a film industry in a city can be. Food, food labels. Why is milk not having to put food labels on despite having high fat content, but beef does have to have a label on when this thing starts? We're going to talk about that one. Extreme intoxication, a very controversial decision by the Supreme Court a while back. The government says it's now going to fix this, but does it need to be fixed? And we will talk about the idea of Andrea Horvath running for mayor of Hamilton. Would that change things significantly in the race if she were to jump in? Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Four months from now, we are going to be ready for this going back to the polls. Yes, I know we had the federal election. We had a provincial election. We're not done. We're making it the trio, the hat trick, whatever you want to say. We're having a municipal election in October. And between now and then, there is one name in particular that I suspect you're going to be hearing an awful lot of. And that is Andrea Horvath. There have been, for a long time now, there's been talk about whether or not she would someday run for mayor of Hamilton if she didn't win the provincial election. Well, that hasn't happened, and now she's stepped down as leader. And Fred Eisenberger, the outgoing mayor who's announced he's not going to run, said, hey, she'd be terrific. And Andrew Horvath was on with Bill Kelly yesterday, non-committal. But non-committal oftentimes means not no, if you catch what I'm saying. She could have simply said, no, I'm not going to do it. The non-committal part is only going to fuel more belief that Andrea Horvath at some point is going to jump into this mayoral race and run for the top office in Hamilton. I want to bring in Peter Grafe, professor of political studies at McMaster University, who joins us now. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. So the first of all, let me do this. She has been non-committal, but do you believe that ultimately when it all is said and done that Andrea Horvath will be running for mayor? Yeah, I mean, that's what I took from uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger's, uh, you know, kind of resignation uh, speech was, you know, making uh, that claim that, you know, Hamilton probably could use a a woman in the mayor's chair and that, uh, you know, Andrea Horvath might be a good choice. Uh, I mean, I don't think those things happen by accident. Uh, Clearly, uh, he feels that it's a pretty good chance that that's going to happen. Uh, Obviously, Andrea Horvath being noncommittal is also a sign that she's seriously considering it. Because as you point out, if she wasn't interested, she would have said no. Uh, You know, if she was planning to run, she probably still wouldn't have said yes, uh, because she wants to have all her ducks in a row before she announces and gets out. So those are all things that are indicating a pretty high probability uh, of a mayoral run. Although, you know, it is possible that it's still being weighed uh, on the part of Andrea Horvath rather than it being a firm Mm. decision. And the other thing is, too, I mean, even though I don't think that Fred Eisenberger, what you would what what he gave would be called an official endorsement. 
I would believe that you can't say, hey, Andrea Horvath is going to be a really or could be a really good mayor. And then all of a sudden she doesn't run. So you switch to someone else. You've if you're the outgoing mayor, you've probably got one endorsement that you can give that has any weight. You're not going to throw that out there loosely or, or just throw it away. Yeah, that's true. And probably, again, if you want to do the endorsement, you want to do it right in the campaign when it's going to have a bit more a uh, bit more impact. But, you know, when you look back at Mayor Fred's career, you know, in his, his first run for mayor, uh, you know, he was really seen still as someone who had run for the Conservative Party and was close to Conservative politics. You know, and the kind of tacit support of people like Dave Christofferson or Andrea Horvath, I think, were important in him to uh, being able to craft that anti-Larry Deany coalition that, you know, just got him into the mayor's chair. So I'm sure Fred Eisenberger remembers that and probably also remembers Andrea Horvath coming out in support of the LRT at a time when uh, that project was hanging in the balance, which, again, has kind of served, uh, you know, his legacy. So there's a number of reasons why we might not be surprised to see him uh, support uh, Ms. Horvath especially if the alternative is Bob Bertina, an old rival of his, of course, who cost mm. him the mayor's chair in 2010. There is a really interesting political conundrum, I would say, in the mayoral race right now, because you've right now you've got, okay, you've got Bob Bertina, who is a liberal. He's run as a liberal. He's sat as a liberal. All right, he's there. You've got Keenan Loomis, who was the head of the Chamber of Commerce, which you would think would be a conservative-leaning candidate, but seems to be much more progressive than you might expect. You've got well, Eisenberger, who had run, as you say, as a conservative, but also leans a little left. And now you've got Andrea Horvath maybe jumping in. Where does this, if Keenan, if Andrea does jump in, what is the, where does this leave Keenan Loomis? Because they seem to have a lot of the same interests or, or presumably would have a lot of the same positions. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how Andrea Horvath runs. I mean, she hasn't been in municipal politics for 20 years, uh, you know, and it was a very different Hamilton 20 years ago. Uh, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, Keenan Loomis is speaking to a, a downtown urban renewal crowd. I mean, we might call that progressive, but I mean, ultimately, it's about a vision of how you build the economy in the city around, you know, young professionals and building the downtown rather than, you know, building further suburbs as a, as a basis. So, yeah, I guess part of it is Vandier Horvath comes in and is seen as, you know, a bit of a left candidate, does, uh, you know, does a business community and, uh, you know, the right in this city rally around Keenan Loomis as a person uh, to defeat her, or are they, are they going to look uh, somewhere else? Uh, I mean, again, Andrea Horvath may make a different pitch than Keenan Loomis, realizing that there's a lot of people who live in the suburbs who don't necessarily respond to the manner of framing issues that Loomis has done to date. There's a lot in Loomis's campaign that reminds me of Brian McHattie's campaign from two elections ago. You know, which resonates really well uh, in the center of the city, but you know, didn't really develop the messaging to reach people and the concerns of people living in the suburbs. And so we'll see if if Loomis develops that. But if he doesn't, you know, in some ways, uh, Andrea Horvath may be better positioned uh, to make appeals to to those communities, given her experience trying to do that provincially. Again, tricky though. Does Andrea Horvath resonate with those in the suburbs with well, with, I mean, it, with an NDP background? Question. I mean, she she has a kind of, you know, she's the, the, the local girl who made good on a bigger stage yes. coming home, that yep. kind of plays. Uh, you know, presumably she feels uh, there's enough organization of a new democratic vote that could be pulled uh, should she run, although, you know, these things don't translate uh, immediately. You know, in those ways, I think she probably has more organization and, and perhaps a better idea of what kinds of messaging uh, appeals there. And so, you know, when she comes up with a platform, it'll be interesting to see you know, what appeals she makes to try and uh, reflect the concerns of, of people living in suburban Hamilton. 
the one thing she has in spades, and that is um, we always talk in municipal politics, especially of name recognition and why the incumbents have a massive advantage because of name recognition. She's not an incumbent, but I can't imagine there's anybody in the city, if she were to run, who would have greater name recognition. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, even Rob Bertina, who's, who's been mayor of Hamilton and, you know, a member of parliament, and before that uh, was, uh, seemed to have a few gigs on your radio station, you know, so it's well known <laughs> across the city, might, might, yeah, probably even there has a bit less uh, name recognition at this stage after six years in Ottawa. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that will be, that will be an important factor, but, you know, it's hard to know what the, what's going to play in this election. Name recognition is in her favor. If it's a change election, you know, she's certainly part of uh, the Hamilton political class and has been around, you know, a long time at age 60. Uh, you know, do people see her more like, you know, Barbertina as someone in his 70s or, you know, and, and, and appreciate the youth of Keenan Loomis? Or is that going to be a non-issue? So there's a variety of different ways that this election could pan out depending on, on how the, the voters of Hamilton approach it. Fascinating situation. We'll be watching for sure. Peter Grafe uh, from McMaster. Thank you as always for your time. You're welcome. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You may be familiar with the show Umbrella Academy because you've watched it on Netflix, perhaps, or simply because you've heard from people that it was filmed here in Hamilton, or maybe you've stumbled upon some of the filming here in Hamilton. Well, it's not just the seeing our city on screen that's kind of cool about this. We've now got an economic report about the impact of this show and presumably others like it. This show, for the second season, $77 million generated for Ontario. Now, that's not all in Hamilton, obviously, but that is a a huge amount of money from one show. I want to bring in Justin Cutler. He is with Ontario Creates. He is also the Ontario Film Commissioner that is with the Ontario Film Commission that works with Ontario Creates. I think that's how I got Did I get that right, Justin? You got it. <laughs> okay. This, um, when I see one particular show that is generating... According to this report, $77 million across the province, a good chunk of that in Hamilton. That seems like an extraordinarily high amount of money. In a way, it is. Uh, And uh, we're so happy to have that partnership with uh, companies like NBC Universal, where we've earned the trust uh, to bring those productions to Ontario and have them made here uh, with homegrown talent uh, and locations, etc. But it also uh, adds to our overall um, uh, 2021 uh, production stats of um, $2.88 billion that were contributed to our GDP and 48,000 jobs that were created in Ontario last year. So if I'm, lo- I'm looking at a graphic just with the Umbrella Academy, and I-, I presume we could extrapolate this across what you just said with that 2.88, 41% of that $77 million spent on local goods and services, 59% on wages and salaries. However you break it down, again, it's, it's, it's only good. So why are we being so successful here in Hamilton and across Ontario in getting these productions? Is it just because we're cheaper? Um, no, you know, it's, it's, it's really not, um, you know, Ontario and major filming hubs like, like Hamilton have earned the trust of producers worldwide because of the turnkey solution we offer them. Um, you know, we well, have, what does that mean? so, I mean, we've got a great package of assets, so we've got diverse locations. Um, you know, Hamilton alone offers a wide range of architectural looks and natural looks from different time periods. Um, great locations like Gore Park, where Umbrella Academy set up an apocalypse, um, hmm. to, uh, not the first uh other, time. 
<laughs> yes, right. <laughs> um, and time travel portals in the alleys of Ottawa Street. Um, you know, uh, the fact that we've got such a wide range of locations, both in Hamilton and across the province, um, being able to double for any kind of major metropolitan city in North America or many locations worldwide, that, that's a big attraction for us that you can't find in other places. Um, we also have great crew, great talent, uh, and great performers. Um, on Umbrella Academy alone, uh, we've received six Emmy nominations for homegrown talent. And it, the, 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 the series has also featured great local talent like uh, actor TJ McGibbon as young Vanya in the, in the series. So these are things that, are, um, that take a lot of time to develop in the province. So, so we're really happy to have those and offer them to productions. But I'd also add that we have great local production services, you know, accommodations, restaurants, equipment vendors, studio facilities, um, and even in Hamilton, uh, great used clothing stores like Vintage Soul Greek that uh, supported the project and in, in helping kind of transform the city into uh, 1960s uh, Dallas. Um, and then the, the other major feature that Hamilton has to offer and actually uh, 80 other regions have in the province is a fantastic film office. Uh, the film office in Hamilton helps attract and retain productions to the region, um, helping them with their, their permit requests and air traffic controlling them around the city um, and also connecting them back to the businesses that I just mentioned. And Hamilton was actually nominated uh, for the Location Managers Guild International Awards. So competing against jurisdictions worldwide for their outstanding film wow. local film commission for the support during season two so um these are the kinds of things that really help uh, help us attract nbc universal's umbrella academy and so many other projects yeah i was well. going to say here a lot of people thought all we were was the backdrop for all the hallmark christmas movies because we're in every <laughs> one of those i believe there's a shot of hamilton or dundas in every single hallmark christmas movie i think that's the new rule they have we must have a shot from hamilton <laughs> we're also building and have built but also are building a brand new studio here in the west harbor area is that going to add to this when you centralize some of those things should we expect more things coming to hamilton yeah absolutely um the the growth of, of studio facilities like uh, eon studios right and there you just mentioned or even bigger production facilities like skylight steelworks which is um uh, you know a portion of the stelco plant is being is being used now as a dedicated filming space. Um, really? These bigger infrastructural elements are really attracting productions to the region. And, you know, you've probably seen Handmaid's Tale and many other productions mm -hmm. taking advantage of that over the years. And I could see more coming to the region over the next few years based on that. One of the things uh, I've talked to a, a, what do you call it? A set, um, a guy who looks around, a sketch scout, a, a scout mm -hmm. for locations. And one of the things, as you said, they love the idea that there's so many different looks in this city. That's something I've heard before. But I wonder, does it get more difficult? Because I don't think a whole lot of film companies want to see the same thing again and again and again. They're always looking to have something that looks new or something. Does it become more difficult the more you have here to keep more coming because you can get repetitive? It's a really good question. So, so location burnout is certainly something that um, we're always thinking about um, when recommending locations. And our location managers at the DGC's um, locations caucus are incredible at you know renewing these locations, making them look interesting from different angles. Um, but they're also uh, out there looking for new locations, as is the Ontario Film Commission. Um, so, my office, we're we're always looking for new locations across the province to put in our locations database, which actually hosts ten thousand locations from across the province wow. and that's we're, we're growing that usually by 150 to 300 locations in any given year both through submissions for from property owners and locations that we're shooting so we're 
constantly trying to renew that to attract these uh, productions. Let me ask you about that. If you are a homeowner and you know that people have heard, you know, you can make a little money if they want to come and use your house. Is there somewhere you can call or email or sign up and say, hey, if you want to use my house, I'm all for it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they can reach out to our Ontario Location Library on the Ontario Film Commission website. Uh, there is a way to sign up uh, your locations. It's kind of like Airbnb, except we don't deal with the actual bookings that's dealt with between mm. productions and and um, and the homeowners or property owners. But we put up the listing, all the images, and uh, we tag each one of those images very specifically. So if a, a producer or a location manager can find a certain architectural style um, or element in those homes. Like if you want to find a Gothic home with a pool, you can find that in our library. So um, that that's uh, the service that we offer for free. There you go. So if you want to make a few bucks on the side, now they do require the use of your house, I guess, or your yard or your farm or whatever, but hey, you know, why not? They're, they're looking for it. Uh, Justin Cutler, listen, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today to talk about this. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are now months into the Russia-Ukraine war, and we're now hearing more and more experts and observers and others saying, get used to this because this could go on for not months, not Another year or so, years is what people are now, some people are now saying. Is that a realistic long-term view of what's happening over there? I want to bring in Oral Braun. He is a professor at the University of Toronto in the International Relations Program uh, in the Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you. Would you agree with those who are now saying this is uh, turning into something that could look very protracted? We just don't know. Uh what we have learned about uh, the conflict is that much of it is unpredictable, mm. but it is not uh, inevitable. And consequently, a great deal depends on what we collectively in the West are prepared to do. If we were to provide the Ukrainian armed forces with the desperately needed weapons that they have asked for, and not slow walk them the way we have so far, it is conceivable that Ukraine could prevail. So this conflict would not last that long, that the suffering of the people of Ukraine could uh, be diminished, that the damage that is done to the international system, because let us not forget that this is a conflict that is affecting not only what is happening in Ukraine, but food security around the world has been affected as well. And so many other factors have come into play. So it is uh, not uh, wise for us just to lay back and say, well, there's a kind of fatigue, something that is happening uh, at a great distance. It's just going to continue, and that's how matters stand. We do have it within our powers to affect that outcome. When you mention, when you use the phrase slow walk the weapons there, is that still because of our underlying fear that if we do something quicker or bigger that Vladimir Putin may follow through on his threats? This fear has permeated our actions, particularly in the case of the President of the United States, who has uh, talked about uh, the evils of the Russian invasion, who has taken great pride in uh, the fact that uh, he and his administration had predicted the invasion, but they have not done much to prevent it. And certainly they have not... uh, moved quickly enough. You will recall that um, early on in the conflict, President Biden had, uh, or his administration at least, had advised 
the president of Ukraine to evacuate. That would have been catastrophic. Had that advice been followed by President Zelensky, Ukraine resistance probably would have collapsed. Mm. That the early request for heavy weapons was not met. That the Biden administration tried to have this fine distinction between defensive and offensive weapons. And consequently, weapons that had longer range were not uh, being uh, delivered. And it's when Ukraine began to turn the tide around, when they pushed the forces uh, that Russia had launched around the capital, Kiev, and the second city. They pushed them back. That's when the Biden administration gradually began to do more. Now, I don't want to say that it is only the Biden administration. The Europeans have been very slow as well, particularly Germany. Mm. We have heard lots of rumors. I, we don't, I don't think we know for sure anything, but we've heard lots of rumors about Biden maybe not being well, that he may have cancer, that he may have something else. There's all kinds of stuff. Be that as it may, if we are living in fear of our decisions because of the threat that Biden, or the, not Biden, pardon me, Putin, uh, if we're, uh, all those things I just said, Putin, not Biden, um, if we are living in fear of Putin doing the things he says, would we be better, would the world be better at this point if Putin were to die? Or is it a much more unpredictable if he goes because then we don't know who might be in power and things could really change? If we operate on the basis that we are constantly afraid, that we build up Russia into this uh, immutable superpower and that uh, whatever we do might provoke that superpower to do uh, even more, be even angrier, we are making a huge mistake. Vladimir Putin is not a chess player. He's a poker player. He has bluffed a great deal. He does not lead a superpower with the exception of nuclear weapons. He leads a remnant of a superpower that has a miserable economy, that has an army that can punch hard, but has a glass jaw and uh, does not take well when there are counterattacks. And we just don't know for sure what would happen if Vladimir Putin is uh, is removed, but it is a personalist system of government. He makes the key decisions. He made this decision, which has proven to be catastrophic, not only for Ukraine, but also for Russia, to invade Ukraine. He has miscalculated. And I think the odds are that if he were to be removed, and he were to be removed because there is a realization of the massive strategic failure, then the successors may very well decide that it is time to rebuild the Russian armed forces, that it is time to revive the Russian economy, because the sanctions, though they have a limited effect, are nonetheless corrosive in the Russian economy, which was in bad shape to begin with, um, outside of energy, uh, is suffering. Last thing, um, we don't, again, as you said right off the top, we don't know necessarily that this thing is going to become entrenched and go on for years and years. But the fact that every, I think many people expected when Russia launched this attack, the huge Russia was going to have its success with Ukraine. That clearly has not happened the way many expected. We saw something similar back in the 80s with Russia and Afghanistan, different geography, different scenario, I understand. But is there a lesson here that Russia may have a lot of military might, but they're not really good at fighting wars? 
They are good when there's no resistance. They were very successful in 208 in Georgia, when there was little resistance. When uh, they invaded Crimea in 2014, and there was really no resistance. Or in Syria, where there's no effective resistance to mass bombings. But uh, Russia is one of the most corrupt societies on the planet. This is according to studies by Transparency International. And that corruption has also permeated the military. So we did not take that into account. We looked at the parades at Red Square, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we thought this was an invincible military force. And it is as corrupt as the rest of Russian society under the rule of Vladimir Putin. Fascinating stuff. Oral Brown from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, the University of Toronto. Very much appreciate your time and your expertise today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you like reality shows, maybe you came across one called Love on the Spectrum, which is kind of a a highbrow, feel-good not documentary, but reality show about people on the autism spectrum finding love. And it sounds like it's making fun. It's not. It's very beautiful. It's very nice. It's very fun. It makes you feel good. Then there are all the other ones that are out there, the reality shows. And there's now a new one coming out. And I must say, this one has caught my attention and I probably will take a look. It's called Snowflake Mountain. And the, the premise is they take a bunch of snowflakes of young pampered, I guess, easily offended Gen Z people and send them off into the wilderness to see how they will survive. Uh, Bill Briou is a great TV writer. Um, I'm sure he, if he hasn't seen this already, I'm sure he'll take a peek. Bill, how are you? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I am good. Will you be tuning into Snowflake Mountain? Definitely will want to check out the first episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the trailer looks hilarious. Well, look, the, the idea of a snowflake, first of all, there is this probably is going, I would guess, going to be something that appeals to older people because I'm not guessing the people in that generation want to be known as snowflakes and probably don't want to have these people fail miserably if that's what's going to happen. But I, I, I would have to believe there's going to be an audience, a curiosity audience for those who are a little bit older. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's a polarizing show. And you're right. I don't think uh, the Gen Z viewers will embrace it. But, you know, millennials might and Gen X and others. It's not just boomers. I think it's, uh, it, you know, the, the two bad guys, these two guys who are uh, sort of the trainers. There's a, a group of 10 young Gen Z uh, folks uh, who think they're going on a camping trip, but really it's a t- tough military operation in the middle of nowhere. and They're parachuted in. And these two guys who are ex army you know who were ballistics experts uh you know they're they're there to whip them into shape uh and uh you know the the premise of all reality television is to humiliate people and it's, <laughs> it's true. been that way all the, all along so yeah these these kids get uh, roundly humiliated even in the trailer they say that uh it's not that they can't just hold a job they can't even empty a dishwasher you know they <laughs> So they really, uh, it's strongly worded to offend Gen Z viewers for sure. But yeah, there will be a long, large segment of people on the other side of uh, the age spectrum who will be nodding along. Do you think there's also a political spectrum on this one that may be more? I mean, there's so much stuff on Netflix that has been... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Leaning left a little bit. I mean, you've got shows produced by Obama and you've got shows produced by the Duke and Duchess or of, you know, Harry and Meghan. And you've got, 
a lot of things like that. They don't have a lot of stuff that sort of needles the left too much. This one, it looks like kind of does. Yeah, it does. And uh, certainly that, especially in America, but in Canada, things are very divided politically. So yes. you cannot make anything like this and not expect to divide the audience for sure. But one of my favorite shows on TV every Friday is on uh, Crave and HBO. It's uh, Bill Maher. Right. And, uh, you know, he literally uh, does not pull any punches. He's very outspoken when it comes to his view of uh, Gen Z and even uh, other younger generations. Um, and his, his fr last Friday's editorial uh, on New Rules was just like a two-by-four to the head. And so, you know, a lot of people are watching him do those aghast. And then there's a lot of people who are like going right on, Bill. So uh, I think that's what's happening here. Well, is this now that Netflix, I mean, Netflix, I think you and I talked a while back when the results came out and Netflix had not had a good quarter. Is this the result, do you think, of Netflix looking at the numbers they have that aren't good and saying, we can't just do political stuff on one side, that we have to appeal to both? Or is that a complete fluke and this is just a reality show that, hey, it just sounded like a good premise? I'm sure this was on the drawing board a year ago, way before their uh, dip in the ratings. And really, if there's motivation here, it's like Netflix execs saying, hey, we're spending $13 billion billion dollars a year on content how can we make shows a little cheaper and somebody said well if we just get 10 volunteers the main prize is only 50,000 and drop them in an island with two other guys that probably only cost about a third of what a scripted show would cost all in favor and I think that's <laughs> I think that's the motivating factor here but that has that not been the motivating factor for almost all reality shows? Survivor went, I mean, Survivor, I know it wasn't the first reality show, but it's kind of the first one we all think of. And it was pretty costly, but there have been so many that followed that have just been, what can we do that costs no money to make and put something on TV? Yeah, you're right, Scott. But I think that um, where we're, what we're seeing the shift in is in streaming services like Netflix and others moving into the live reality show format. Uh, you know, we're seeing this more and more, and it was always broadcast game. And uh, now uh, I think uh, it broadcast um, has been doing, it keeps doing it because it is cheaper to do. Uh, but now we're seeing the streaming services sort of hit the wall in terms of budget and realizing, you know, we can snare as many subscribers with a, a show like this. And, yeah, we can do live. There's, they're getting into showing football, NFL football yes, and, yes. and Major League Baseball on all kinds of platforms, uh, Prime Video and Apple TV. Uh, every every Friday, Apple's got Major League Baseball. So live uh, reality shows are now being streamed live uh, just like they are uh, being watched live on broadcast. But let me go back to something you said a few minutes ago, and I think you're largely correct. However, I think it may have changed a bit. You said that reality shows have always been about humiliating the contestants or the people on it. And there was certainly a time, I mean, I remember the early days of American Idol when Simon Cowell would be vicious to some of the people who couldn't sing. And then there was clearly a move to soften it and interestingly, ratings also seem to tumble a little bit. Survivors seem to be a little, well, a little more willing to take chances once upon a time that way. It's been softened. Do you think maybe they're also looking and saying, you know, it's time to get back and allow the people to see what they seem to like on television rather than pandering to that soft edge always? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Scott. I think that what these shows have to do is they have to go with the times. And if the times are tough, if interest rate is going through the roof, if gasoline now costs $120 to fill your tank, people feel beat up. They've had two Mm. years of COVID and everything else. So they don't, yeah, humiliation probably not as uh, the appetite is a little bit less. And seeing people win, uh, real regular people, uh, I think you're right, is uh, more of a motivation right now. This uh, this will have a long way to go, though, in order to top the all-time greatest humiliation reality show. I don't know if you remember this one, Bill. we got to run, but did you ever see Superstar USA? Uh, yeah, but the, I would nominate another show, which okay. was The Swan, where they did surgery on yes, people. Okay. <laughs> they changed them. They literally... They literally carve them up and then they put two people up against each other and one of them would be voted off anyway even though they underwent right. dramatic cosmetic surgery and and at least one of uh, these people i believe committed suicide oh afterwards. my yes no i don't think that happened to superstar usa it was the opposite of american idol they convinced people they were looking for a good singer but they were really looking for the worst singer in the <laughs> states you can still find clips online but you might want to be sitting down because it is it is so <laughs> awkward and so cringy but anyway uh yeah superstar usa if you need that today bill brew always appreciate the time thanks for doing this my pleasure anytime scott you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml yesterday on the show we were talking on the round table about food labels warning labels essentially on food that health canada wants to implement so that you will know what foods have more, have at least 15% of the recommended daily intake of sodium, sugar, or saturated fat. The idea, I guess, is we're all going to be healthier because we're all going to read these warning labels and say, oh, I don't think I'll buy that bag of chips today because there's a warning that says it's not good for me, even though we all know what's good and not for us, I think. However, there is controversy brewing because there's always controversy. It doesn't. It seems like we can't do these things without some kind of weird rule being put in that makes everybody upset. And that is whole foods, natural foods, fruits, vegetables, certain cuts of meat, they are going to be exempt. They may have more than 15% of the recommended daily intake of sodium, sugar, or saturated fat, but they're not going to have to have a warning label. However, beef and pork will. Of course, those who are in the beef and pork industry not happy about this at all. I want to bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. The Food Professor is what he is called. He joins us now. Sylvain, thanks for the time today. Uh, my pleasure. So should the folks who are beef and pork farmers be bent out of shape about this? I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's it's a head scratcher for sure. Uh, when you look at the policy itself, uh, uh, you do wonder why uh, ground meat uh, is uh, is not exempt, uh, while dairy is exempt, and 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 dairy products, many dairy products actually would contain. Uh, more saturated fats than, than than some some ground meat products. So, yeah, it's uh, there's the there's there's no coherency really uh, when you look at the list of exemptions. Now, the spirit of the policy itself, front of package labeling, uh, is uh, I think desirable. Uh, honestly, we've seen uh, policies like like uh, this one in other countries, and it actually really forced. Uh, the industry to provide healthier products and I think everyone wants that and so I don't think that the food industry disputes uh, the spirit behind the policy however uh, 
every country you'll have a list of exceptions and this would make Canada the first country in the world not to exempt a single ingredient product so right because the idea here the idea here I thought was essentially to it's for the heavily processed foods so that people That's are right. aware that yeah. but this, what this sounds like is that Health Canada is saying beef and pork are unhealthy on their own when, that when like it's the raw, that's that's the that's the other part. When it's raw, <laughs> when when once cooked, uh, and we have to exclude extra lean ground meat because extra lean ground meat wouldn't be a subject to this new policy. Uh, but as you know, Scott, extra lean ground meat is typically way more expensive. Of so course. if you basically force grocers to slap a label on ground meat. Um, other than extra lean, well, guess what? Those products are going to disappear. Grocers aren't aren't interested in selling products that are labeled as unhealthy. So you're likely going to see ground meat prices go up even more. And given what's happening with food inflation, and in about an hour uh, and change, we'll hear more about uh, about our food inflation rate status in Canada with uh, with the new CPI report coming from StatsCan. I mean, a lot of people are concerned about food inflation. This policy could actually make uh, the meat counter way more expensive. So, but the threshold is actually uh, applied on products when they're, when, when products are raw. Once cooked, the product actually should be in compliance with Health Canada's threshold. Yeah. It, it, again, it just it seems like it's such a weird message, and I I don't and I don't suspect that this is the reason. But Sylvain, considering where much of the beef manuf- beef growing is done in this country out west, where already they feel like the liberals hate them, I can't imagine this is going to play very well. They've already tried to kill the gas industry, and now you're going to kill our beef industry. Whether I mean, as I say, I don't think there's an intent there, but boy, I, I would suspect that that's how it's perceived there. Well, when you look at beef in particular, 50% of all beef consumed in Canada uh, is ground beef. So obviously, this kind of impacts sales. Now, are politics involved? I don't know. But I can tell you, based on what you're looking at right now, based on what we know so far, and, and, and Health Canada hasn't made an official announcement yet, but we understand it's coming, uh, you have to believe that, that that there is some ide- ideological thinking behind some of the things that are about to be announced at Health Canada. So I think the beef industry and, and the pork industry, and by the way, the pork industry is also impacted by this. And in Quebec, uh, half of all hogs produced in Canada are, are in Quebec. So What's ground right? pork would be subject to the same policy. So again, Lack of coherency. There's 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 no logical spin here, uh, other than perhaps seeing a, a federal agency discriminating against uh, a product that is adored and valued by by Canadians for for centuries now. And you say you don't know if there's any politics, and that, I think that's a very fair comment. On the other hand, we have dairy, which is a powerful lobby group. We know they're protected already with price regulation. And and dairy, which, as you say, probably should have a warning label. Somehow they slip by. It sounds political. Whether it is or isn't, it sounds political. That's right, and 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 that's why I, I, I've often said in, in recent weeks that uh, that some saturated saturated fats are more equal than others. <laughs> yeah, 
and and I think you understand what I'm saying, Scott. Here is just yeah, and the lobby, the dairy lobby, which is one of the most powerful lobbies in Canada. Uh, was successful in convincing Health Canada that the saturated fats in dairy products is, are, are not the same and should be excluded, and they actually succeeded in doing so. But the beef industry is not as well organized. And so I'm, 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 I'm still hopeful. That, I mean, the, the, the right thing to do for Health Canada is to, ex, is to exempt ground meat because you're basically going to hurt Canadian families, yeah, uh, yeah. their pocketbooks, essentially, because it's going to make ground meat uh, a, a, an affordable source of animal protein more expensive. we got to run. And next time we talk, maybe we can f- try and figure out why it is that dairy and beef come from the same animal, but one lobby is able to be so effective and the other isn't. They, they should maybe get together and just do <laughs> the cow me. industry rather than... No kidding. Uh, Sylvain, Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor. Thanks for this, as always. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. And a few months, I think, if recollection is accurate, a few months ago, the Supreme Court of Canada handed down a ruling that a lot of people found, well, pretty darn shocking. And that was that you could be too intoxicated to be responsible for certain actions criminally. And this has long been something that people have said, well, that doesn't make sense. Whatever you put into your body, you're responsible for that. But they said, no, no, in certain cases, you could be too drunk to be responsible. Well, the government of Canada now says it's going to try and write some new legislation that would clear this up. I want to bring in Ari Goldkind, lawyer, uh, to talk about this this morning. Ari, thank you for the time. Really appreciate it. Scott, great to be with you. Were you as surprised when the Supreme Court handed this down as so many other people seem to be that they said this was something you could use as a defense? So, Scott, here's the deal with this issue. It's the most misunderstood issue of the year. Really what happened here is that as the result of a Supreme Court decision, a bunch of very unfortunate headlines went out, basically saying if you're drunk, you get out of jail free card for rape. If you're drunk, you get a get-out-of-jail-free card for sexual assault. Those are unfortunate headlines that because of the media age we live in, anti-social media, okay, that's the message that people got to the point where the government didn't do a proper enough job of saying to people, hold your horses. That's not what the decision says. So to make it very clear, here's what the decision was. In Canada, we don't convict people who don't intend what they do. The standard for your mens rea, your mental state of mind, is so low to get through the door of criminal liability, I don't know what to tell you. So here's why it was misunderstood, and that's the headline that went out, which is there were a couple people, I don't even need to get into their names because we don't have the time, where they took substances that they didn't know because of the very specific and odd composition of their brains. One was magic mushrooms, one was Wellbutrin. That be, in, in one of the cases, it's because the man had been very badly concussed, and this perfectly normal young man, when he took this combination of drugs, which he could never have foreseen, would have led him down any path other than listening to music and having munchies. I'm being somewhat lighthearted. Right. Yeah. He ended up butchering his parents, one of his parents, and in a way that even his family said, we know this wasn't him. Now, to get through the door, Scott, to be able to put this defense in, you have to have not only the defense expert, the accused doctor, but the crown doctor all saying this person was, again, in the interest of time, out of his mind. Years ago, the the 
government of Canada, this is 30 years ago, said, well, you can't bring that defense. So even if you're out of your mind through no fault of your own, we'll get to the fault part in a moment. Even if you're out of your mind, you don't intend to do what you just did. You're an automaton. You're a walking robot. You can't even put that defense before the court. A defense, by the way, Scott, that is as rare as the dodo bird. I mean, maybe a little less rare than a dodo bird. We've never seen one. But because these two people had this happen to them, another person, which is a different part of the story, the Supreme Court had to rule on the issue where these two people said, well, wait a minute, we're convicted for things that everybody agrees we shouldn't be convicted for. Even the judge, the judge and the judges, their hands were tied. Now the government of Canada is going to shore that up. And we can talk about that bill. It's called the Extreme Intoxication Bill. And they've really done this not to protect Canadians, not to better make, not to make the criminal justice system better, but kind of as a result to all the information, go back to my first sentence, which is people were told across Canada that if you go out and get drunk and have 15 beer on a Saturday night, you go out and sexually assault a woman, you get a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's what's happened here, and the Supreme Court, depending on the time we have left, basically gave a little wink-wink, nudge-nudge to Parliament to go write some legislation, and they did. Okay, everything you just said makes a ton of sense and clears up some of this, but I, I still go back to the point that forever... You have been responsible for what you put in your body. And yes, I understand exactly what you're saying that, well, maybe you didn't expect that you were going to have the reaction you did. But I think that an awful lot of people, if they took magic mushrooms, would not know what the response is that their body would have. That, that, that seems to be not the idea of drinking 15 beers. That's, you know, that, that's, that's pretty and darn that's, clear. And, and that's very fair, which is why we're going to get into what the Supreme Court gave a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the justice minister to do. Okay, which, which is, is what? which is that it's not really about drunkenness. It's sort of about taking substances, sometimes getting high, okay? Because getting drunk or high is not a defense, all right? It never was. Let me be very clear, Scott. If people hear this, they can only hear this. Being drunk or high was never a defense to these charges, never. You couldn't even bring it into court. You'd be laughed out of court. It doesn't happen, okay? I covered, I covered a, a murder trial one time where the guy was so drunk, they tried to use this, and you're right. I mean, it was the non-starter, but they had nothing else. So, anyway, And when you say on. non-starter, Scott, let's, be, let's, let's bring your listeners right into the courtroom. A judge will laugh it out of the courtroom, okay? It doesn't even make it over a, a hurdle that's six inches high, all right? But there are these rare dodo bird cases, and he, let me go back to your question. What is this law about? Okay. Let's say somebody's a regular marijuana user. All right. Yep. And as they're using marijuana, they have a headache one night and they take, or they have back pain. And let, I'm making this up so Robaxacet shouldn't get mad. <laughs> they take Robaxacet. But because the person, when they were six years old, I'm just making stuff up here. When they were six years old, they had a concussion and they had a pinched nerve in their back and they didn't know it. Okay that the combination of the marijuana brand they're using and the Robaxacet makes them go out and derail a train, all right? Yep. That is not something that would be at all foreseeable from that person taking substances to get high and then taking something else that's not foreseeable. All right, I, I see what you're saying. And, that's where, and so to end the answer, because it's really not that complicated as much as, again, people have really butchered this whole story. The, the Supreme Court said to Parliament, look, if you can show 
that people have done and taken these substances in a way that they can foresee the risk. You know, doing 10 lines of Coke, Coke's not a great example. Doing, you know, a whole bunch of hallucinogenics. As you said, doing magic mushrooms out the yin-yang when you know you have a condition that you shouldn't be taking any drugs. The court will look at what you did to minimize or avoid that risk. If you didn't, if you were careless, if you took a bunch of substances to get high, that reasonably, Scott, this is always the term in our business, that could reasonably be foreseen to cause extreme intoxication and, this is the key, and lead you to harm another person. You don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card. But the message, Scott, because this has been so butchered in the way it's been explained to people, is that they never had that get-out-of-jail-free card in the beginning. And if we had more time, I'd get into these specific cases that led here. But in the interest of time, this is, again, a communications issue, not a how-the-courts-work issue. Well, that is unfortunately the time we do have. But again, this will be coming. The, the government is writing some new legislation, and this will be uh, presumably presumably clear for everyone, although you know nothing is ever completely clear. Ari Goldkind, always appreciate having your time today. Thanks for doing this. Great to be with you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.